you could turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are some gentlemen in the aisles with Bibles. If you're our guest this morning, you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one with our compliments. So if you could flag them down, get their attention, they would be glad to give you a Bible that you can keep, and that will be marked in the Scripture passage 1 Timothy chapter 5, that will, be, that will be marked so that you can follow along with us this morning. There's also an outline that you should have received in the program. It's got some blanks in that. If you're the kind of person that likes to follow along and fill in the blanks, do that. It's kind of like bingo, except there's not a prize at the end. <laughs> but at least you have all of your blanks filled in. So we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5. I read a story last year about a Swedish woman named Lena Paulson. Lena Paulson was doing some holiday baking. She was doing some Christmas baking back in 1995. And as she was doing that, she decided that she was going to take her rings off and set them on the windowsill so, so that she could do the baking that she needed to do, as I'm sure many of you have done before. And once she was done with her Christmas baking, she went back to the windowsill to grab her wedding ring, and her wedding ring was gone. And she looked everywhere for it. Uh, The Paulson family looked in the drain. You know, the, the rings can go down the sink sometimes. They looked in the drain. They looked under the appliances. They looked in the ground outside the area where the window was. They tore the house apart trying to find this ring. They even pulled up some of the floorboards in the kitchen when they did some renovations a few years later because they thought that maybe it, maybe it had slipped through one of the cracks and they could find it down there, all, all to no avail. And it was, it was a tough loss for her because this was the kind of ring that she couldn't get back. She had actually designed this wedding ring for herself. And it was made out of white gold, had several diamonds arranged in a way that she had designed. They were very disappointed about it, but the family decided to, to give up. Then last year... In October, she was out in her garden, and she was, uh, was picking some, some carrots. Do you, do you pick carrots? <laughs> Harvesting carrots? Do you harvest carrots? I don't know what the proper term is for when you gather the carrots. <laughs> she was gathering the carrots from her garden. And as she was pulling the carrots out of the ground, she was walking the house, and she noticed a glint off of one of those carrots. And you can imagine where this is going. One of the carrots had grown straight through her wedding ring that she had lost 16 years ago. Just all that time, it's gone. She thinks it's hidden. It's lost forever. And then while she's doing some normal, mundane thing, working in the garden, she finds a carrot that has grown straight through her wedding ring, and it's been returned to her. The Bible tells us that our deeds, like that wedding ring, don't stay hidden. The things that we do in our lives, our actions, whether good or bad, have a way of coming up to the surface. They don't stay hidden. And the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning highlights that. If you're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to read verses 24 and 25 together. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25 says this, The sins of some men are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds 
are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. I'll leave the scripture up there during the message. Even, even the same way that, 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 that your evil deeds come to the surface, so good, so good deeds become obvious too, and even the ones that are not cannot be hidden. I want us to spend some time thinking this morning about the fact that, the, that your actions, your deeds, the things that you do in life never stay concealed, never stay hidden. But before I do that, I want us to, to make sure we understand why these verses appear at the particular place in First Timothy that they appear. So let's take some time to think about that. First of all, these, these verses appear in what are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are simply letters that are written to pastors. And so the two pastors that the pastoral epistles address are Timothy. So we have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then the other pastor is Titus. The pastoral epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was giving all kinds of instruction about church life to these young pastors, talking to them about how they're supposed to conduct themselves in the ministry of the church and also all the things that are related to church life. And so we see things like how a young pastor ought to deal with people who are older than himself. A young pastor is going to encounter that all the time. He's going to have interactions with people who have had more life experience than he does and are more mature than he is. And so there's advice on how to do that. There's advice on the church's responsibility to people like a category of people like widows. Who should the, what kinds of widows should the church take care of? What are the rules for how God's money should be dispersed? The pastoral epistles deal with things like that. The pastoral epistles also deal with the qualifications for pastors or deacons. Who's going to lead the church? And of those people that are going to lead the church, what are the kinds of qualifications that they're supposed to have? Can just anyone do it? The pastoral epistles address that, and the verses that we're considering this morning apply perhaps most narrowly to the decisions that Timothy would have to make about surfacing, identifying, and elevating leaders in the church. And so it says earlier in the chapter, in verse 17 and 18, Paul gives Timothy advice on compensation for elders, how they're to be paid. In verses 19 and 20, Paul lays out rules for proper and improper ways for an accusation to be made against an elder. People are going to have complaints. And Paul says if you have a complaint against someone in leadership in your church, you need to bring that accusation to the attention of the leadership with two or three people. He's trying to protect both sides from unwarranted accusations, but at the same time still giving people recourse because we all know there are rogue pastors. There are leaders who are in it for themselves. They are in it to fleece the flock rather to care for the flock or for the power rather than to serve. These are practical issues that happen in churches all across the world every day that the pastoral epistles address. In verse 21 of our chapter 5, Timothy is warned not to appoint men based on, on partiality or special treatment of people. There are going to be people who are wealthy. There are going to be people that, that hold a position of influence in the community. There are going to be people who, who, are, who have the kind of personality that is magnetic 
People are drawn to those kinds of people. And Paul tells Timothy, warns him, hold on just a second. There are spiritual qualifications for the people who lead God's church that are meant to supersede the things that we normally look at when we're identifying leaders. The spiritual qualifications of those who lead come first. And so they're not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. They're not to be hasty in commissioning people to lead God's church. And this echoes something from earlier on in in the letter. In chapter 3 and verse 6, one of the qualifications for pastors or elders, the term is used in the New Testament interchangeably, one of the qualifications is that they not be a recent convert. There's nothing wrong with recent converts, and Paul isn't saying that young men shouldn't be in the ministry. In fact, it appears that Timothy was, precisely was that, and that's why some of the advice had to be given to him. But Paul warns Timothy not to push people forward too quickly. They need time to mature. They need, to sh- they need time to show that their profession of faith is genuine. We do not want novices leading God's church. And so the verses that we read about deeds coming to light, whether good or bad, come on the heels of that advice. It's like the, it's like the specific, specific application of the principle is given, and then the principle is given. He's, he's telling Timothy, look, there are going to be some people in the church whose deeds are obvious, sinful deeds are obvious, and they proceed to the place of judgment ahead of them. You can see it coming. There are others, though, whose sins trail behind them. It's not as clear. It's not as evident. It's not as obvious. So don't be too hasty in pushing people into ministry. And the same could be said for good deeds. There are some people whose good deeds are are very clear, but there are others whose good deeds are more understated. So Paul is not so Timothy is not to be too hasty to reject to to accept someone into ministry, but he's not to be too hasty to reject them either. Some people have quality of character that takes time to discern and understand and see. That's the general principle that Paul is is giving to this young pastor as he's looking out over the people that are in his church. I want us to consider these verses from a little bit of a different angle this morning, though. I want us to consider that general principle more broadly. Rather than applying it to ourselves, uh, rather than, uh, than, uh, than talking about it specifically as, as it relates to identifying leaders, Paul told Timothy that there were going to be people of a certain character that were in their church. I want us to see ourselves in that. I want us to see that there are people in our church who sin is going ahead of them to the place of judgment. I want us to see that there are people in our midst who have some sins that no one knows about, but those sins are trailing behind. I want us to consider the fact that good deeds are going to be obvious, and even the ones that are not readily obvious at the beginning are going to come to light. We're going to consider verse 24 alone this week. Verse 24 talks about the fact, first of all, you can see in your outline, that your sin cannot be hidden. Your sin cannot be hidden. My sin cannot be hidden. Christian people often get into the groove of thinking that sin is what other people do. Sin is, sin is something that, that the world struggles with. But it's not something that we really have to give much concern to ourselves. I mean, sure, 
You and I sin here and there. But the fact of the matter is that, that Jesus' blood covers our sin. For those of us who have accepted the gospel, the reality is that, that Christ's blood covers your sin. Christ's blood covers my sin. And what Romans says is absolutely true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that does not mean, friends, that we have uh, the opportunity to take a casual approach to sin. It is true that Jesus saves us both from the penalty and power of sin. The penalty is hell and death and separation from God forever. But Jesus' death accomplishes more than that. It also frees us from the very power of sin in our lives. It does not eradicate indwelling sin, but it breaks the back of sin in our lives. The Bible refers to the power of sin in the life of a person who is not a believer. The Bible refers to that, as, to that person as a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin. Sin is your master. But when you come to Jesus, you have a new master. The power of sin is broken. But it does not follow that we may take a casual approach to sin in our lives, as I do. And perhaps sometimes you do as well. The same book, Romans, that tells us the penalty and power of sin has been broken, also tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The people who are given the Spirit, God's children, the people who have come and received the free offer of grace in Christ, are people who have the Spirit of God living within them. And people who have the Spirit are people who fight sin. People who have the Spirit are people who do not take sin casually. And I do not want us to be a church of people who are unconcerned with sin, unconcerned with the presence and, 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 and the, the havoc that sin can wreak in our lives, in our relationships, and in our families. We've been talking over the past few weeks about being hearers of the word, but not just, not just hearing the word, but being doers of the word. And the danger, as we've seen in James week after week after week, is that it is possible to just constantly go on through life constantly unchanged, unconcerned with sin. And Romans tells us that people who have the Spirit of God within them, Christians, aren't like that. They care about sin. They want to kill sin. They want to rid themselves of sin. And when we do not do that, we do it to our own peril, the peril of ourselves, the peril of our families, the peril of our churches, and the peril of the mission that God has given to us. Paul was warning Timothy that when he looked out across the people in the church, Christian people, that there would be ones who didn't take sin seriously. And that whether it was obvious or not at the moment, the results of indulging sin would not stay hidden. We've read and we've heard in messages before this quote by the Puritan John Owen, but I share it with you again because John Owen talks about the fact that Christians need to be concerned with murdering the sin 
that is in their lives. Here's what John Owen says, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify or kill the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with him, quickened means made alive, will not excuse you from this work. Anybody in here not speak Puritan? Let me translate it for you. The most dedicated Christians who are assured of their forgiveness in Christ make it their business to kill sin. Don't forget to kill sin or it will kill you. Even though Christ has been punished for you and you have been given new life, that is no excuse to stop trying to kill sin. When you and I indulge sin in our hearts, when we entertain it in our minds and in our relationships and in the spheres of influence that we have, we cannot expect it to stay hidden. It is going to bubble to the surface there are some kinds, of, some kinds of oil that you can't paint over. You can paint the wall, but if there's a little bit of oil that's gotten on the wall from something, it'll look good for a few moments. It might dry and look okay for a little while, but that oil is going to start bubbling to the surface. It's not going to stay hidden. And that is exactly what happens with our sin. The Bible consistently and constantly warns us that we need to be on a mission to kill it. Sin, then, to give you a compact definition, is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. This definition of sin is comprehensive, and it makes it so that we cannot escape putting the, lo- the definition, the label of sinner, on our own chests. Sin isn't just the big things, the bad things that we see on the news. Sin isn't just what corporations do. Sin is something that has a hold of each of our hearts. And far too often I, and perhaps far too often you, tolerate what one author called the respectable sins. Sins of anxiety, jealousy, selfishness, pride. Our passage speaks of the judgment that accompanies sin. And for the believer, that judgment often takes the form of unintended consequences. We're going to talk about the eternal consequences of sin later in the message. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the immediate consequences of sin. Sometimes we focus so much on the eternal consequences, we forget that much of the New Testament was written telling us about the immediate consequences of sin. The New Testament is surprisingly normal in the, in the advice that it gives. It talks about the relationships that husbands and wives have. It talks about the relationships of parents and children. It tells us how to relate to employers. It gives us all sorts of normal things to do in the midst of normal life because the Bible realizes that sin unchecked has its effect. It ruins everything. Sin like a disease must be taken seriously. We must take it seriously because unchecked, its growth has major consequences. 
Families are destroyed. Relationships can be ruined. Churches can be divided. Joy is lost. Proverbs 13, verse 15 says that the way of unbelief is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Sin does not deliver on the lie that it promises. Rather than giving you what you expected, it makes life hard. Friends, your sin and my sin will not stay hidden long. We need to take it seriously because sin has consequences. And our passage says in verse 24 that the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. Some sins are obvious, and letter A says, obvious sins bring judgment. Obvious sins bring judgment. When it comes to people who are in the public eye, celebrities, you can see that some of these people are just a train wreck waiting to happen. You probably are, are thinking of people in your mind right now. The one that comes to my mind immediately is somebody like Charlie Sheen, who had a very public meltdown last year sometime. He's losing everything. He's losing children, job, notoriety, money. And the whole time, he's saying that he's winning. That he can do massive amounts of drugs with no consequence, that he can do whatever he pleases, live in such a way that he pleases, that the consequences won't touch him. And I think everybody in America is watching this public meltdown and thinking, why can't you see that this isn't going to end well? The question that I ask myself sometimes when I watch these celebrities, and the list could go on and on of people who are heading in a particular direction that is certain doom, and yet they continue going down the path. I ask myself why sometimes, and the answer that I come back to, that I believe the Bible's answer is, is that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. The smartest woman in the room here can be deceived by sin. The smartest guy in the room here can be deceived by the promise that sin offers. And sin has a way of blinding us, doesn't it? Sin has a way of making us stupid. Sin has a way of making us fall for the lie that we can go down this path and we will not have to answer for it. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say this, See to it, brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That verse is speaking to Christian people. Christian people need to be warned that sin is deceitful and that it is possible for your heart to become hardened to it. We've mentioned in past weeks about Romans 125. It says that people exchange the truth about God for a lie. All the sin is the exchanging of a truth about God for a lie. And when you fall for one lie, you inevitably fall for another and another and another until you are on a path headed for doom. Your heart can become calloused. Your conscience seared. And things just 
stop registering. That's one of the reasons, as an aside, that we do not live our Christian lives in isolation. The verse that I just read in Hebrews says, Encourage one another. The point of gathering, the, being, the point of being put together in a body is that so you can point this, the deceitfulness of sin out to me because I can't see it. The point of us meeting together in our community groups and talking about the word that's preached week after week after week is because sin is deceitful and it can take root in your heart. It can take root in my heart and all of a sudden we are heading down a path and things are splintering apart and, it, and the people around us see it but we're not changing because we're believing lie after lie after lie. And so though none of us want to put ourselves in such company as the celebrities that we scorn at the supermarket checkout, the reality is that when it comes to our sin, many of us are just as foolish as they are. The sin we harbor is obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of us. And we don't see it because our sin isn't that bad or it isn't that public. But I'm sure that there are people under the sound of my voice today, and it may not be Charlie Sheen public. It's probably not Charlie Sheen public. You'd have to do some work to get that that level. It might not be public like that, but there are people in your life who know and are warning you. There's family members that know. There are Christian friends that know. Your church leadership knows. And these people are coming to you and asking you, warning you not to hold on to your sin And I'm begging you this morning to believe the word of the Lord and to believe those people that you cannot hold on to your sin and expect to escape the consequences of loving it. It's like you're in a parade that's moving forward to its inevitable end. It's already even started to reach the end. And there are people watching you as you wave by and you don't see where that parade is going. You're the only one with the blinders on. We cannot be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I say to you this morning that you cannot consistently and knowingly choose sin and think that you can escape the consequences. I'm not talking to people who are struggling with sin. There are people who are daily struggling with sin and fighting sin. And sometimes they're achieving success and sometimes they fall. There's a word for those kinds of people. You know what that word is? Christians. Those are Christians. That Christians struggle with sin. We fight it. But there's, I'm talking to a different category of people. A category of people who are knowingly and consistently and deliberately choosing the path of sin. And so I say to our young people, our teenagers here this morning, heed the warning of the word of the Lord. Don't go down that path. It seems like you have your life ahead of you and it seems like there are people ahead of you who are doing what you want to do and escaping the consequences. And I am telling you that you run the risk of hardening your heart to the deceitfulness of sin and swallowing that lie. And there are, there are leaders that God has providentially placed in your life. There are parents that God has placed in your life. There are people telling you, don't go that direction. 
heed their warning. The sins of some people are obvious, preceding to the place of judgment before they even get there. I say to our adults this morning, you cannot consistently and deliberately choose the path of sin. Do not dabble in it. Do not flirt with it. Do not be curious about it. Some of you, against the counsel of your family and your leadership and friends, have something that is known, and you will not let it go. Because letting it go might relinquish your rights to whatever it is that you're supposed to have. I'm telling you, you have fallen for a lie. Husbands and wives, you cannot knowingly and consistently over a period of years hold a grudge and bitterness against your heart and not think that it's going to, it is not going to eat you from the inside out and that it's not going to destroy your marriage and hurt your children. It's going to happen. You cannot consistently and knowingly main, harbor jealousy for that other person in your heart. You cannot pursue worldly success. You cannot pursue material satisfaction. You cannot pursue idols and find them deliver what you expected in the end. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment before them. My sins, your sins, cannot be hidden. And sometimes you can see that the, that the, that the, uh, the train is on the track, bearing down towards the car that is stalled out at the intersection. We need to be a people, CBC, who take sin seriously and are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hidden sins, letter B, bring judgment. Obvious sins bring judgment. Our text tells us that hidden sins bring judgment. Some people are the public train wreck. But there are some people whose sins trail behind them. There are some people who think that they're the person that's not going to get caught. They think that the cover-up is so good so perfect, so well-planned, so executed. And the Bible says that people who hold on to sin like that, professing to be wise, they become fools. I, I think the way, the way our text talks about sin is just trailing behind us is just an arresting way of putting it. Have you ever been out walking at night? I take, I take uh, walks at night sometimes to clear my head, late at night when it's, when it's dark. I help patrol, Wayne patrol Allen Park sometimes as a citizen. <laughs> you ever been out, have you ever been out walking at night through a dark parking lot and you think you hear somebody behind you? There's this rustling behind you um, and, uh, and you kind of are looking over your shoulder <laughs> and your, your pace kind of quickens a little bit, your heart, rate, your heart rate quickens a little bit and you keep checking over your shoulder just to make sure That's kind of the way I think of this scripture text. It talks about sin, our sins that can't stay hidden. It talks about them behind us. So we're walking, and it's like they're connected to us by this invisible tether. 
that we can't cut. This leash. And we think we've got them buried. We think that we've thrown them to the bottom of the lake. We think think that we have done everything we can to cover up. And nobody knows about it. And yet, they're just behind. A little bit of distance. Following us. Waiting for the opportunity. Sometimes those hidden sins come to light in life, letter I. Sometimes those hidden sins come to light in life. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it comes to light pretty quickly. Those of you with children, have you ever had the long, young children, ever had the long periods of silence where you're happy that the kids are all getting along? And as you're, as you're remarking to each other that, wow, the kids are getting along and they're silent, they must be playing, all of a sudden it comes to your mind, what are they doing? And you go downstairs and they found a, a marker and they've painted a mural on your couch. That's probably happened to anyone with young kids. Sometimes those sins come to light fairly quickly. Sometimes those sins take longer to appear. And I can think of no better illustration for this than the scandal that has happened at Penn State University in the past year. When you think about the fact that in the past year, well, several years ago, an assistant coach brought to the attention of Joe Paterno the fact that young boys were being taken advantage of by one of Paterno's close friends and associates, an assistant coach, taking advantage of young, underprivileged boys that have been placed under his care. And what is done about it? Well, lots was done about it, actually, Lots of cover-up. All the energy that they could have expended in getting justice for these boys and ensuring that this didn't happen to any other victims, all of that energy went into the cover-up. And so a man like Joe Paterno, who has been a coach for 45 years, had the most wins of any coach a man who had taken his football team to two national championships, had won every major, all four of the major bowl games, was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame before his career had even ended, who had sportsmanship trophies named after him, who had a library on the campus of Penn State named after him, who had been immortalized in bronze outside the stadium, a man that whether you liked the team or not was, was almost deified as a coach who did things the right way, who took care of his players. Who, who, who put academics to the forefront, who made sure that his players graduated. He had done all of those things. And yet, the sin trailed behind him. And in the last months of his life, he lost everything. Wins, gone. School, penalized. Scholarships, lost. The statue, taken down. Murals, painted over. His family name, dragged through the mud. Why? He hid sin. Rather than doing what he ought to do, he hid his sin, all those things were lost. And in the last few months of his life, he died in infamy. The sins of some trail behind. There are people here who have no doubt done a good job of covering up sin. There are godly people who have done all sorts of godly things 
They're involved in the church. They're doing this and that. They're very busy on the outside. But inside, I am sure that there is someone here who has granted safe harbor to sin in your heart. It's a sin that you think no one knows about. We've heard word just this week of a missionary who has faithfully done the work of the ministry for many years. It has had a moral failure of some kind that was going on for some time and has had to come home from the field and has had to resign from his ministry because there was sin that he had harbored in his heart. Don't judge him because that's me and you. We're capable of that. We're capable of following, following the lie for the deceitfulness of sin. I use all of these in illustrations to try to beg you to believe what the Bible says this morning, that sin is deceitful. And while the sins of some of us go clearly ahead of us and we can see the certain destruction, the sins of others trail behind. And they may come to light in this life, Hidden sins always come to light after death. Hidden sins always come to light after death. And I'll be quick to finish. But let me just say this. Believe it or not, there is something worse than, here, than receiving the consequences of sin in this life. If you are here this morning and you are thinking, I could not possibly come clean with my sin, let me tell you something. There are worse things than the consequences of sin in this life. They are to be avoided. But there are some people here this morning, and I hope very few, but there is po- it is possible that there are people here this morning, and you are trying to cling to your profession of faith and cling to your sin at the same time. And you cannot do both. And you are clinging, I chose my words carefully, to your profession of faith. You aren't clinging to Jesus. And you are harboring sin in your heart. And you're thinking that you can get away with it. And you're thinking that because you're around Christian people and you're doing Christianist stuff, you're going to be okay. But you're not going to be okay. Because what makes judgment for sin absolutely inescapable is that there is a judge who transcends time and space and can see all. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Sometimes the worst possible thing that could happen to you is that your sin never be found out because while you have breath, you have time to repent. And the word of the Lord says in Hebrews 9:27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. What I hope has become clear this morning and I recognize that we're dealing with some, with some heavy stuff. And next week is going to be better. <laughs> We're dealing with some heavy stuff, but I think the Bible would have us backed into that corner. I think, I think the Bible wants us to be backed into the corner so that we feel the weight of our sin. Because you cannot see 
the second point on your outline, the last point on your outline, you cannot see that you need Jesus if you do not feel the weight of your sin. And so, Christian friends, this morning, in spite of the fact that we have countered such heavy, weighty things, I want to remind you of the gospel. Do you realize that you need Jesus just as much today as you did the day you first believed? Do you realize that? If you do not constantly remind yourself of the grace that God has shown you in Christ, you are going to be tempted to either ignore or hide your sin because you are constantly going to forget that sin has been dealt with finally and fully at the cross. Let me remind you of the fact that all of, the, all of your sin, all of your shame, all of the things that you and I try to hide, if we can just come and bring those things to the cross, they can be forgiven. In other words, in other words, all the things that we do are eventually going to come to light. And the only way that that cannot be an absolutely terrifying thing for you and I to consider is if sin has been dealt with. And so I remind you again of the good news of the gospel. That for those who come and put their faith in Christ, believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. That Jesus lived the life that you have failed to live. And that he then turns and offers that life to you. You can have free forgiveness. You must constantly remember that gospel. You must constantly remind yourself because you must constantly learn to rest in what Jesus has done for you. If you do not rest, if you do not, if you do not start from a position of rest, which sounds counterintuitive, but if you do not start from a position of rest, then you are constantly going to be fighting your sin in your own strength. And you are constantly going to be losing the battle. But Jesus' death provides for you not just freedom from the penalty of sin, but freedom from its very power. The back of sin has been broken. And it will keep you from hiding or minimizing your sin. It will allow you to take sin seriously. It will, it will allow you to step into the light because you don't fear the light anymore. That's what the gospel does. The gospel allows us to go public with our sin. It allows us to take our sin to Jesus because Jesus has gone public already for us. All the shame that you have for your sin has been laid on him. He has borne the iniquity of us all. Don't hide your sin. Let go of your sin. Be a people that are killing sin. Finally, to our friends here who are not Christians. You've never, you've never known Christ. Somehow you, somehow you made it here this morning. You are hearing the gospel, and this is a providential opportunity for you to respond to Jesus in faith. Jesus once said this really great thing in John six thirty seven: Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. 
don't put all of that energy into covering up your sin or hiding your sin or minimizing it. Don't live with your secrets anymore. Don't live with your past anymore. Take it to Jesus. Take it to the only person who can take care of it. And it will give you a freedom to fight sin and let go of the secrets and the habits and the things you hide that you've never known before. You say, how do I do that? Realize, first of all, that you are a sinner. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you. Repent of your sin. That's all Jesus asks for you to come. He doesn't ask you to reform yourself and make it right. All he asks you to do is believe that he has already done it for you. Repent of your sin, turn from it, and receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's pray. Lord, we have encountered difficult things this morning. We have thought about the fact that all of our deeds, all of our actions will eventually come to light. Lord, I pray that you would make CBC a church of people who don't take sin lightly, who take sin seriously, and help us to do that because we do do so from the standpoint of absolute security in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that sin can be defeated, that the leash can be cut, that we can be free of the shame and the guilt. Help us, by the power of your Spirit, to believe that the power of sin in our hearts is broken. Thank you for what Jesus has done. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.